Do you have a tricky work problem that you need to solve? I have a great podcast recommendation for you featuring a pair of expert women. Whether you're just starting your career or a seasoned professional, check out Fixable, a podcast from TED. Hosted by Harvard professor Frances Fry and her wife, leadership coach Ann Morris, the brilliant duo provide honest, actionable advice to help you navigate everything from a gaslighting manager to returning to work after parental leave. They'll leave you feeling empowered and ready to act. Listen to Fixable wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, and welcome to the Boss Up Podcast, episode 250. My goodness, we have had a lot of episodes already, and I am thrilled to introduce y'all today to one of my personal heroes for who, to whom I really owe so much of my career because so much of what I speak on, including assertive versus aggressive communication, including a ton of best practices I've picked up along the way over the years when it comes to public speaking, stems directly from the woman you're about to meet. Barbara Tannenbaum is a professor at Brown University with whom I studied in my senior year at Brown which is, ooh, 11 years ago now. Um, So it's been a little while. And she is a professor whose reputation really precedes her. When I was a freshman, uh, going in from my public school education to this very fancy Ivy League institution, I was trying to cross all my T's and dot all my I's and be as, you know, perfect and performative a little power player student I could be. And my mom, who's a labor and delivery nurse, knew one person who'd ever gone to Brown, and she was a doctor that she works with. And Dr. Peggy Koo said to my mom, you have to tell Emily when she's headed off to college to be sure to get on the waiting list for Barbara Tannenbaum's popular Brown University course on public speaking and persuasive communication. So my freshman year, first week of class... I found my way to the very obscure theater department and sat in this class where I was by far the youngest person present. Everyone there were seniors and juniors and everyone knew each other. And I was like so out of my element. I just sat in the corner in the front row, but in the corner and we went around the room introducing ourselves. And I I was one of the first ones to speak up when I said I was a freshman or first year student. (laughs) Barbara looked at me like, you have no business being in this class because she reserves her classes for seniors and juniors um, because it can take that long to get in off the waiting list on her on her waiting list for her very popular course. So I my first year of college, my first week of college, I got on the waiting list for her course and was able to get in ultimately my senior year. And her course is super popular for a good reason. It teaches you how to present yourself persuasively. And she has just such a wealth of knowledge when it comes to powerful public speaking. So you're going to hear from her things you may have heard me say in the past because throughout this conversation with Barbara, I realized even more so, like you'll hear throughout this interview me get very nostalgic because 
there's so much of my day-to-day work um, that's informed by Barbara Tannenbaum. And so it's it's kind of an exciting episode to go direct to the source, the OG, the, the really queen behind so much that I have learned and so much that I share now on public speaking in the form of one of my favorite college professors, Barbara Tannenbaum, who is here to drop some massive knowledge about how to be a more powerful public speaker. Barbara Tannenbaum, PhD, is president of Dynamic Communication and distinguished senior lecturer in the Department of Theater Arts and Performance Studies at Brown University. She helps business executives, doctors, judges, lawyers, bankers, engineers, politicians, and salespeople learn how to take up space and communicate with power to maximize the effectiveness of their communications. She has a special interest and expertise in gender issues and communication and is a frequent speaker at national conferences for women, including the Omega Institute and the Omega Women's Leadership Council. Her keynote speech, Powerful Communication, has been rated with the highest possible ratings by many audiences, including the annual conference of the chief judges of the appellate courts. Barbara, I'm tempted to call you Professor Tannenbaum. Thank you so much for being on the podcast today. I'm delighted to be with you. So I am, I really want to first give you credit for everything I've ever learned about public speaking. <laughs> and well, thank you. I'm delighted to, to have you on the podcast to talk through one of my favorite meta topics here of talking itself. Tell our listeners a little bit about how you first came to this uh, subject matter and, and, and sort of how you got into public speaking yourself. Well, I was the ultimate shy, quiet girl, the one whose report cards came back from school, ideal student, but quiet, quiet, quiet. And what transformed me was having something to say. Mm. It was a very political time, and I felt that things needed to change, maybe not unlike the times that we live in again. Mm -hmm. And so I found my voice to work toward change rather than to think about myself or what other people thought of me. There seemed to be a much larger goal. And keeping my eyes on the prize, if you will, kept me from thinking too much about being the shy girl and not having the confidence to speak up. I think that's such an important message. Reminds me of the concept of servant leadership altogether. It's not about you being the boss. It's about what you're hoping to get done and how you step up into the void to lead through change. That's awesome. Why do you think it's so scary for so many of us to make our voices heard? You mentioned being the shy girl why do you think there are so many shy girls out there? And especially for women in male-dominated spaces, why can it be so scary to speak up? Let me highlight perhaps four different reasons, although I'm sure there's a longer list. The first one is lack of practice. Throughout history, throughout cultures, women speak less frequently and at, le- and at shorter duration than men do. Now, mm-hmm. here I want to pause and say that a lot of this research has been done with the gender binary, women, men, and we know that it's a continuum and it's much more complex than that. Mm. So I hope that listeners will realize that it's much more complicated than women and men or all, it's never all women, all men. And But going back to the research, women do speak less frequently. As a matter of fact, in male-dominated fields, this gets to be even more pronounced. In a study done at Princeton, where they had women and men volunteers who were, their goal was to solve a budget problem. 
when the women were in the minority, they spoke up to 75% less than the men did. So it's not just imagine that we're speaking less, and it continues clearly again. So we need to speak up more. And then when we do, sometimes we're interrupted. And men interrupt more than women interrupt. They are, to some extent, equal opportunity interrupters. They'll interrupt each other. (laughs) However, the data are clear that they interrupt women more, about three times as often. And if we think about maybe if women get to be more and more powerful, we'll get interrupted less. Sadly enough, a study that was done with the U.S. Supreme Court said that it is not three times as often that the women on the bench are interrupted. It's eight or nine times as often. So even rank won't keep us from being interrupted. We need to know that there are names that they call women who talk too much Mm -hmm. or whose voices they don't like to hear. But we need to speak up in spite of that. So practice will help. Mm. Number two, this is a little more complex, and it's what we call where we attribute source of success and source of failure and how well we know our assets. Mm. And it's important to know our strengths. Women often deal with the fear of failure. And in a book called The Confidence Code, they conclude that One of the reasons that we lack confidence is because we haven't failed. And until we fail, we live in fear of the failure. Mm. And that's what zaps our confidence. So we need to say what we've done well and not overweight what we haven't done perfectly. And often women, and especially women in science and engineering, the Mm -hmm. striving for perfection, you want to control all of the variables and in speaking and communicating, that's a very hard thing to do. I love that point. Yeah. I, I do want to jump in just to say that that completely resonates with me. For a long time, I was striving for perfecting, performing, and pleasing because that's what gave mm-hmm. me success in the form of a high GPA. And mm-hmm. I really appreciate one one of the things that I really appreciate about my higher education experience at Brown University was the freedom to fail a little bit that comes with our curriculum there and taking classes pass fail as an option to encourage experimentation, not perfectionism. So, you know, failure is always more scary in the abstract than it is when you really nail down what would it look like to try this and then bomb and then take it from there. Absolutely. When a study was done at HP, it was shown that women will apply for promotions if we think we're 100% qualified, and men will apply at about 60% qualified with the same kind of credentials. So this can hold us back if we don't take credit. We often assign credit elsewhere. It was just luck. I had a lot of help. I'll probably never do it again. Uh, All of those kinds of things reflect on the fact that we often give our credit away Mm. and we need to not take credit for other people's work, but certainly learn to take credit for our own. So we don't attribute our success, and that makes it harder to speak up. Number three is role models. And here we should have hundreds and hundreds of strong women role models. And we are 
certainly getting more. It's wonderful to see more women in political world where we see them up doing debates or uh, rising to higher levels. But we all know that it's still number four, not an equal playing field. Mm. So in terms of role models, we need to become those role models for the people who are following us. And the not a even playing field, the stakes are higher for us. Often, whether we're a woman or whether we're a person of color or whatever it is, if we are the only one in the room or one of several in the room, sometimes it holds us back thinking, I'm, people are going to think I'm representing the whole class to which I belong. And so we become more visible because we are different and we become we fear we become more judged as well. Mm. So those are some of the reasons that it's harder for women. Yeah. Also, it's harder for women because men need to show competence and that goes along with confidence. With women, competence and confidence are not enough unless we also show warmth. And so there is an extra burden that right. wanting to be liked that you mentioned earlier mm-hmm. is real. And not only is it real, but it's expected that we need to be liked in order to succeed. And here I would talk about the work supported by the Barbara Lee Foundation, L-E-E. And what she does, it's so unusual, is she publishes and supports uh, as as a benefactor uh, bipartisan research on how to get more women elected to uh, to office. And what she shows is that we do have a likability. I mean, there are so many double binds when I whenever I talk about being a woman who dares to make her voice heard. Right. And one of the double binds that I talk often about, because it is such an interesting mischaracterization and misunderstanding that you really clarified for me in in class many years ago now is the difference between aggressive and assertive communication. Can you break that down for our listeners? I would love to so that it's clear for everyone listening. I will say, though, that it doesn't keep us from getting backlash. And I first noticed this when the women's movement came and the same statements were made of women that had been made earlier people of color who dared to speak out and do powerful speech. You're too angry. You're too emotional. You have no sense of humor. You need to be more patient. And when I realized that speaking up was in fact a political issue, I started to think more about the label of being aggressive because we're so Mm. afraid of that as women often we pull too far back because we're afraid of going over that edge. And we all know what kinds of names will follow, um, even as recently as last week in Congress. So very clear difference between assertive and aggressive. Assertive means I have rights. Aggressive means you have no rights. So let me give an example. I'm waiting online for tickets to a concert. I've been waiting several hours. Someone cuts in front of me. Assertive means I have the right to say there's a queue here. People have been waiting for hours and the tail end of the line is back there. Often people don't even know where lines form and they don't. Aggressive means quite simply that I'm the cutter. So it's important to think, am I taking someone else's, um, uh, am I inhibiting someone else? Or am I just saying what I need or what I would prefer? Recently, 
I was in an airport before COVID. I guess it wasn't so recent, uh-huh. but, but there was uh, there was a group of machines at uh, the ticket counter, and there were several that were open. And there was a woman at the front of the line, even more elderly, one might say, than I am. And uh, and not that I think <laughs> of myself that way, but at any rate, she um, obviously didn't see the machines or didn't know what to do. And a woman, several people behind her, said, "Excuse me." There are open machines. If you need help, I'd be happy to help you. And I thought, would Mm -hmm. I, if I were blocking the line and people behind me were getting impatient about maybe missing flights, would I want someone to help me and guide me through? Or would I want them whispering and getting frustrated behind me? So that's the rule that I use. Would I want to know? And if I would, then it is assertive to tell that person that. And we can do it in a polite and kind way. Just as before when I said we're interrupted, I used to actually apologize for having spoken in the first place. Oh, no, no, Jim, you go ahead. Uh, You know, it says Mm -hmm. what I had to say was not important. What I've learned to say is, Jim, I've been waiting for a while to get in. I'd love to hear what you have to say after I've finished my remarks. And we can be mm-hmm. very polite I about it in both cases, but it doesn't mean we can't be assertive. Right. I feel like there's so much subjectivity around polite and kind and nice as labels for speaking up. But at the end of the day, whether I'm being assertive or aggressive is not about your perception of my tone. It is about whose rights am I speaking up on behalf of. And I want you to know, Barbara, you have made me a lifelong line, like citizen arrester. You know what I mean? I I have this story that I elaborate on in my book about that one of the very first times I met my uh, my partner Brad's extended family all together in one place. We were at a family wedding and we were checking in at a hotel reception desk. And his parents and sister uh, were standing a few feet away when I was speaking with a hotel concierge, checking in. And this larger, older man came up from the side and threw his key card on the table in front of me and directly interrupted my conversation I was having with the concierge and said, my key's still not working. I don't know what you want me to do. And I turned to him and I said, well, you can start by waiting in line because I'm speaking to this man. (laughs) And I think my mother-in-law, my now mother-in-law's jaw hit the floor and thought like, oh my God. And my father-in-law was like, this is the woman you need to marry. Yes. You know, (laughs) and I think I earned his respect in that very moment because it's rare that you have exactly the words you want at your fingertips. But that was one of those line advocacy moments that you have turned me into a line, even defending type person. Well, we all think that if we are assertive, that there might be backlash and we'll feel terrible. However, there is a cost to not being assertive, which is we go home and we kick ourselves for not saying anything. And for anyone listening who thinks that it's like one or the other, I still have those moments as a very assertive person when I kick myself for not having spoken up. And I wonder, do you have those moments too? Always. Yeah. Always. Right. It's easy to replay them. What's important is then to learn from them. Mm, Absolutely. Well said. So coming back to what you've said on confidence, knowing the risks, knowing that women who dare to make their voices heard are called names, even in very public ways, like we saw with AOC, or 
knowing that women leaders effect, basically run into this warmth competence double bind whereby we can't just be great at what we do. We have to be nice while we do it. How are we supposed to cultivate confidence to make our voices heard in a world that sends so many mixed messages? So to make this perhaps easier to understand, I would say that it, it, there are two ways to think about it. Confidence from the inside out and then confidence from the outside in. So let me talk a little bit about inside out. That's what most of us think. I have to work on this. I have to work on self-esteem. Mm. And there are wonderful books on self-esteem, one called Self-Esteem that also has a workbook. And it is written by two men, so it's not about a gender approach. But it, And it does have, it talks about the negative self-critic and rather like hiring a defense attorney when that the voice comes up that says, you can't, you always, you never, you should, you shouldn't. And I always say to my students, don't should all over yourselves. And so, uh, but so if the voice comes up and says, I'm going to do a terrible job at this public speech, then the defense attorney you've hired for yourself is a cognitive voice that says, what evidence do you have? You're well prepared. Mm. You got great feedback. You vetted the material. You've re recorded yourself and looked at and sound how you look and sound mm. to to account for all of those things. So having that voice that says, "Wait a minute, those are fears," but here's the reality, and to counterbalance it. So that's one way to do it inside from the inside out. One of my favorite therapists I've worked with over the course of the past decade tells me that when I when my anxiety kicks in and says, be afraid, you know, be 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 warned of this potential danger. She always says, you know, check the facts. Right. What evidence do I have that that fear, that anxiety response is warranted? I love that point. And, and so each semester at Brown, I start my class with a con an optional confidence workshop where we do some exercises on mm. being assertive. And we have the old formula of being assertive, which is, uh, we call it DESC. Uh, the acronym is D-E-S-C. And it's describe the behavior, say, that you want changed. And then explain mm. the need, why it needs to be changed. Stipulate the new behavior you'd like. And then consequences if the person doesn't do that. And it's a longer formula, and I can give you a quick example. So I wanted my uh, college roommate, she may hear this, was sometimes late. She would say she'd be over and she'd be routinely late. And so I explained to her that it made me very upset because I was waiting on the porch and I would wait for an hour sometimes and I could be getting work done. So stipulate the new behavior was if you were going to be more than 10 minutes late, I need you to call me. And consequences were if you continue to be late, I can only see you on weekends or uh, on school vacation because I don't have time to waste during the week. And so now she calls if she's going to be late. <coughs> Excuse me. <laughs> and she calls if she's going to be late and it's really reduced the tension. Now, you don't always have a chance to have consequences if it's your boss or something like that. So you need to be realistic about what, again, drawing that line, what you will put up with, what you feel that you need to 
comment on, and all of those kinds of things. Aristotle talks about this as goal and audience. What's my goal and who's my audience? And how can I meet that goal for that particular audience? And how can I shape my argument so it will be attractive to that particular audience? So that's some of the work we need to do from the inside out. But from the outside in, there are all kinds of studies that say that looking confident will make people trust us more and will make people think that we are more competent. And again, uh, one of the quotes from the confidence code is that in many cases, and this is very upsetting, especially to an academic, that confidence is more important than competence confidence more important than competence. Now, I'm not going to argue that you shouldn't be competent, but I am going to say that if you're competent, I want you to have the confidence so that it gets to be believed and that people will believe you. So the first thing to think about is taking up space, whether it's on a Zoom call where you want to be sitting up straight, you want to think about having a background that's not too distracting, or you're standing, at which point you want your feet about shoulder-width distance apart. And if you shift your weight one foot, perhaps maybe an inch um, in front of the other one, still a shoulder-width distance apart to keep you tethered a little bit more to the floor so you're not just shifting weight. So taking up space, good posture, good and direct eye contact. And again, if it's a virtual presentation, looking at the camera and not at the screen at the screen, at the person you're talking to takes a lot of practice. I know that. So also eliminating some of the vocal non-fluencies, power zappers, as I call it, you know, which tells me nothing. Or my parents used to say, no, we don't know. And if we do know, why are you telling us? Like is the current generation's Mm -hmm. like, 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 it's a filler, ums and us. Four reasons to get rid of them. They're distracting, number one. And I know in college, I it was my chem professor, we took turns counting ums rather than getting to the material, for sure. Number two, it makes us seem less knowledgeable. What are the facts here or what kind of an increase can we expect? Um, uh, uh, don't really know. Number three, perhaps even more important, it can make it seem as if we're fabricating the answer. Uh, doctor, what are my most recent test results? Um, that bad, huh? Right? So we need, and number four, we often speak in front of an international audience or people who come from different backgrounds. And um or um is a horrible word in Turkish. It is a slang and grotesque word for women's genitalia. So please, in an international case, get rid of ums and uhs. Notice when you do them, have someone remind you. Often people do them between ideas rather than within them. Sometimes people use them as a warm-up. Get rid of the vocal non-fluencies. Get rid of the kind of sortas, the try-tos, the just. And start with email. It's much easier to, to edit with email than it is uh, if you are speaking. I just think gives you no confidence at all. Or as I tell politicians whom I coach, even I think, I say, would you vote for someone who says, I think I have a plan for the economy? I believe I have a plan for education. No, I have a plan. Plans change. Some succeed, some fail. So I can model confidence in the way that I speak, in the way that 
I take up space. And let me share a story with you of a time when I needed to put forth my own confidence and it served me very well. I was asked to work for perhaps one of, if not the most prominent consulting company. And that, um, Yes. And it was going to be in their Connecticut office. Um, I, I was working in another client. They sent me up in a car to Connecticut. My husband joined me. He was going back to New York City. He was taking his suitcase. I was taking mine. I said to him, I have a lot of equipment. I have a camera, a tripod, whatever. Is it okay for me to put a pair of shoes in your suitcase? And he said, oh, sure, fine. So I had two pair of boots, one uh, flat, one heeled, one low, one high, both black. And I put a pair of my shoes in his suitcase. He took them and went down to Manhattan. And I am getting ready now, getting dressed for my 8 a.m. arrival time at the new client to meet with the managing director. And I realized, lo and behold, I now have a split pair. Now, the good news is that I had a right and a left. I'm not sure what I would have done. So my husband calls us, how are you doing? I said, well, funniest thing happened. I'm not blaming you. I put the shoes in there, but I have a split pair. So this is Deborah Tannen's work. She's a sociolinguist out of Georgetown. She says that women often tell men problems. We don't want them to solve. We just want them to listen. Well, my partner, Cliff, decided to try and help me solve. And well, there's a mall there. And I said, yes, but it doesn't open until 10. I need to be there at eight. And besides which, they're not likely to have a size 11. For those of us who wear size 11s, we know how rare that is. At any rate, so he said, I've got it. What Are you wearing pants? And I said, yes. What color black? He said, are you, do you have socks? I said, yes. What color black? He said, I've got to go in your socks. I said, I cannot meet the managing director in my socks. And besides which, I know exactly what I'm going to do. And he said, you do? I said, yeah, I'm going to go in with great confidence. So he goes, more power to you, Barbara. So they show me to my office that I can use for the day down, unfortunately, a long wooden corridor. So I'm going with one heel and one flat, ka-clump, ka-clump, ka-clump. Okay. I do four presentations in very close quarters. And then in the afternoon, I'm doing four individual consults. I do the four and I think I'm doing fine. And then with my first consult, I say, I'm going to tell you something no one else knows. And he says, what's that? And I said, I have two different shoes on. He looks at my shoes and says, oh my God, you sure do. I said, well, maybe you didn't look at my shoes. He said, no, I did because you referred to something and I looked at your shoes and didn't notice. Person number two didn't notice, three and four also didn't notice. So if you don't let it bother you, it will not become a problem. I told this story to my class that semester, and during final speeches, one of my students at the end of her speech said to the audience, I did this with two different shoes. How many of you noticed? And no one did. So it's a question of keeping your own focus, even when you feel like, oh my gosh, what am I going to do? Uh, just get past it. Because if you're upset, then it seems as if you're upset with your audience. And audience here could be one other person. What you need to do is do the best you can and just do it with gusto. I love that story. And, uh, you know, you're making me remember just how much you put us through the ringer in your course, because everything you're describing, all of the body language best practices and even the mental fortitude that you just described, 
you can only gain that through practice, right? It is it is drilled into us in your wonderful class. And I, I am a living sort of byproduct of that. But it's a, not an easy process, is it? No, no. And each speech that we have for the class gets increasingly harder to find something so that I'll always think of your definition. Teach us something. And then, okay, now get us up off our butts and have us do something. And the speech is judged by how many people do it. And then finally, let's find a topic that most of the class disagrees with you on. And let's ask you to change our minds and then measure our attitude change before the speech, after the speech, and then again after Live Q&A. polling. I love it. I love it. I feel like that's debate prep, isn't it? Um, <laughs> my final question for you, Barbara, and thanks again for sharing your time and expertise with our listeners today. For those of us who are nervous and palms are sweating, even thinking about getting up and giving a speech, what tips do you have for keeping your cool when it comes to being nervous and having just a physiological anxious response before you take the stage or or stand up and make your voice heard in a meeting? Absolutely. The first thing to know is, as you say, we all have it. And uh, so it's very common. Secondly, very few people will know that we have it. We don't need to point out, gee, I'm so nervous. All it does is it highlights it. I was walking on campus and this older woman who'd been reared in Europe said, hi, Barbara, Um, don't look at my shoe. It's broken. And I never would have thought to look at her shoe, but suddenly, of course, I couldn't resist. So few people will notice. Don't point it out. You can also think about not trying to do too much. I think sometimes we get overwhelmed with nerves because we're over we're overdoing. Mm. If if we can get people to remember one point from our conversation or an idea that we want them to remember, that's sufficient. We don't need 10 reasons to buy something. We need one compelling mm. reason. Breathe. And for some of us, we have mantras we say and it can change. I've prepared enough. I'm knowledgeable enough. I, uh, whatever it right. could be, mine are often, you know, I I do enough. I am enough. Those are some that you can work with yourself. Most importantly, though, relabel this as excitement. If I were running a race and my heart started to pound, I'd go, great, I'm going to need that extra energy as soon as the signal starts and to run the mm-hmm. race. When I get those same physiological symptoms. For uh, right before a speech, I pull back and say stage mm-hmm. fright, but I put myself into physiological confusion because I do need extra energy. I am now working harder, and so are you, than the listeners are who are absor- absorbing the material rather than trying to push it out there in some right. way. So relax a little bit about that, but relabel it as excitement. I'm feeling so excited. There's an old-time folk singer, now deceased, who said that the one night that he ever gave a bad concert was the night he was not nervous. Mm. There was no energy between him and the crowd. So use it as excitement. And lastly, there are data that would indicate that most of us as audience members forget most of what we hear almost immediately. (laughs) Two weeks from now, I'll be glad if you remember anything. So again, although we may obsess about the small errors, the cough or the sneeze or, or whatever it might be, other people will not obsess about that. So it's important to remember that 
people are both forgiving as we would be in audiences. Control what you can and don't worry about the rest. I love it. Wise words to end on. Barbara, thank you so much for joining me here today. You just gave me such nostalgia (laughs) from back in the day in your course. And I just want to thank you again for sharing so much of your time with our audience, who I'm sure uh, will want to follow up with you. If our ladies want to learn more about the fantastic work that you do uh, and where they can get in touch with you, where should they do so? So the website is www.dynecom, D-Y-N-C-O-M-M, one word, dot com. Uh, or you can email me at barbara at dynecom, D-Y-N-C-O-M-M dot com. And uh, Dynecom is short for my company, Dynamic Communication. Awesome. And we will add that URL to today's show notes where our listeners can learn more. Thanks again, Barbara. This is was a blast. Okay, thanks. It's good to have a visit with you, Emily. Likewise. And uh, thank you to the listeners for listening. Uh, We need to find our voice and become those role models. To learn more, go to dynecom.com. That's D-Y-N-C-O-M-M.com to learn more about Barbara and her fantastic offerings for up-leveling your communication. And as always, you can find links with all of today's relevant show notes at bossedup.org slash episode 250. And now it's time for this week's boss move of the week. Today's boss move comes in from Kayla, who shared in the Bossed Up Courage community on Facebook the following update just a few days ago. Hi, all. Today I had the guts to email my boss to request a meeting to discuss a salary increase for next year. Every year I get a 3% increase, but given the value that I know that I bring to the team, I asked for a 7% increase in 2021. I researched salaries online and talked to a few people in similar roles to determine the amount that I should ask for. I wanted to share this with y'all. Wish me luck. Nice job, Kayla. Good luck. And I just want to highlight how effective the process is that Kayla employed here. This is what I call asking to ask, and it's laid out in greater detail in our free negotiation guide that really walks you through a step-by-step process for asking for a raise or even negotiating a new job offer. She first emailed her boss to ask for time. She said to request a meeting to discuss my salary increase for next year. She made it clear what she was going to be talking about so that her boss could become prepared to that conversation. Uh, And then she did her research. Now, when it comes to doing your research, it's not just about Googling salary ranges online. It's also about talking to real people in your industry. Wishing you all the best, Kayla, and thank you for sharing your progress. I love a boss move like this one because... You know, sometimes we get so fixated on the outcome, in this case it's a raise, that we forget to give ourselves credit of the boss move that leads to those outcomes. It's never about, you know, simply what you're getting. It's about owning your power and really taking stock of just how much courage it takes to advocate for yourself. That's why we call it the courage community. Speaking up and making your voice heard is the boss move here. So congratulations, Kayla, and thank you so much for sharing. Now, if you are feeling inspired to become a more powerful, persuasive, and and courageous speaker in your own right, enrollment is closing soon for our brand new program, Speak Up. 
a two-month intensive training program for women who want to own their voice and speak up in a more persuasive and compelling way, whether it's through public speaking at work or just everyday conversations in which you want to be a more concise, compelling, and effective communicator. Head to bossstep.org slash speakup to learn more and enroll today before we close enrollment on August 9th. Thanks as always for listening. Keep Boston in pursuit of your purpose. And together, let's continue to lift as we climb.